Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Shani Reichman. As everyone listening knows, it's been a really tense week in the Middle East. For our friends in Israel, their records being broken for how far and how frequent rockets from Hamas and Islamic Jihad are reaching them. These past few weeks, we've seen clashes at Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Temple Mount, and in Sheikh Jarrah around pending evictions. There have been riots and mobs, mainly in mixed cities across Israel, that resulted in tremendous inter-ethnic violence with Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis attacking one another. And of course, the escalation with Gaza resulting in many, many deaths, not to mention the horrible anti-Semitic hate crimes across the U.S. and in Europe that tend to rise whenever there's friction in the Middle East. Um, I am here with Elon Goldenberg, who is the Senior Fellow and Director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security and also a Policy Advisor for Israel Policy Forum. A few months ago, he co-authored a report with Tamara Kaufman-Wittes and our very own Michael Koplow called A New U.S. Strategy for the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, which I'm, of course, going to link to in the description and encourage you all to read. Welcome, Elon. Thanks for having me. So we're going to jump right in, um, talk a little bit about the report and also some of the escalation going on in Israel. This morning, President Biden expressed support for a de-escalation with Gaza and predicted that one would be implemented in the coming days. What is his strategy around the current Gaza conflict? How does he sort of see his role as the U.S. administration and how does it fit into their overall approach toward Israel and the Palestinians? Sure. Um, So I think what Biden is doing is basically starting from the position that we're going to try to publicly, and I think this is what they did for the first week and a half, embrace the Israelis and give them the space they need to conduct this operation, while privately beginning to have very serious conversations about when it should end. Um, And I think their thought process was, well, there's a few things to remember in this. First of all, um, the U.S. is not the primary mediator between Israel and Hamas, because we don't even talk to Hamas. Right. So we Egypt ends up being the primary mediator. And so we need to be both talking to the Israelis where we have a lot of influence and also supporting the Egyptians. Um, And, you know, I actually was part of the U.S. State Department team negotiating this in 2014 during the last Gaza conflict. Um, I think one of the lessons we did take out of that is if the U.S. gets too publicly involved, the secretary of state is shuttling around the region like John Kerry was doing. In some ways, we become the story and make it harder to actually get to an agreement. And so that's why I think you see the administration being less loud. They sent, you know, Hattie Ammer, former colleague of mine, both the State Department and at CNAS, um, over to the region. But a lot of the work is also being done through phone calls between Biden and Netanyahu, between um, Blinken and, you know, Netanyahu and Gabi Ashkenazi and with, you know, other others sort of reaching out, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, um, as well as Lloyd Austin, the secretary of defense, reaching out to their counterparts. Um, and um, I think this is the basic approach. Um, he's taken a lot of flack for it, especially from, you know, Democrats um, and sort of progressive Democrats. Um, and it's actually been one of the interesting things. It's kind of maybe we'll talk more about this later, but. You know, one of the interesting things that's kind of developed in all this is create a situation where, like, the president, Joe Biden, is kind of like the good cop with the Israelis, and you have Congress playing the bad cop role um, of sort of saying, stop, 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 um, at least Democrat, like large chunks of the Democratic Party. And that's a kind of first. I don't remember the last time, you know, Congress was the bad cop when it comes to Israel. <laughs> Like, and it's actually a useful dynamic because it allows the president, you know, it's something we do in a lot of other foreign policy issues. Um, 
But usually, like the president feels hemmed in by Congress in the other direction when it comes to Israel. So it's interesting new dynamic in all this. We'll see if the strategy works over the next. I think the strategy is either going to work or not work over the next day or two. When we get to a ceasefire. If it doesn't work, I think you'll see increasing pressure from the U.S. and increasing calls from the administration for a ceasefire. At this point, the calls for ceasefire are directly aimed at Israel and not at Hamas. Is that accurate? Well, I mean, the U.S. calls for a ceasefire on all sides. But again, we have very little influence with Hamas, right? So that's the other thing that's important to remember. Like, it takes two, two to get a ceasefire, right? So we can get the Israelis to agree, but it's got to be the Egyptians who have a lot of influence with Hamas because they control the border, one of the borders into Gaza, um, have a lot of influence with Israel because Israel cares about the Egypt-Israel relationship, who can actually try to bring Hamas on board. It's the Qataris who are one of their Hamas's bigger supporters, um, partially with the okay from the U.S. and Israel at this point because it keeps the situation in Gaza stable. But so our job is to be sending those messages to the Israelis while the Qataris and the Egyptians are sending those messages to Hamas. And hopefully it all comes together eventually with some kind of a deal to end the fighting. Is that lack of communication because of that trope of not negotiating with terrorists? Or is that just a like logistic issue? Or does Hamas just have no interest in speaking to the United States? I mean, it's not even a trope. It's a, it's a law. It's an American law. Hamas is a terrorist organization as defined, you know, a foreign terrorist organization. And we don't deal with foreign terrorist organizations. Now, you know, like in recent years, for example, we have started negotiating with the Taliban, right? So maybe there's flexibility, but the difference is like the Taliban, we, we, the U.S., were a party in the conflict, right? We were in a war in Afghanistan. We had to negotiate with the Taliban to get out. We're not in any kind of war. Like the U.S. is not in a war with Hamas, right? So I'm not sure we need to get engaged at that level and start direct negotiations with Hamas. I mean, it's the Israelis who really need to engage with Hamas. And um, they find creative mediators and sometimes even secretly do it themselves, you know, like if they have to through different cutouts and things like that. So um, that is, I think, why why we're not the ones doing the, the direct negotiations. And what does the communication look like when it comes to humanitarian assistance? Who does that go through? So, right, you have UNRWA, which is on the ground inside Gaza which is probably the biggest provider of humanitarian assistance. And this is one of the reasons why like, we support, or many of us, I know IPF does, supports you know, doing funding for UNRWA. It's not because we don't have disagree, you know, disagreements and the U.S. doesn't have disagreements with UNRWA about some of the things that might teach at schools or like, you know, just concerns about like, UNRWA's political position on certain issues, which is not the American position or Israel policy forms position, but like, they feed people. They provide schooling, they provide health, they provide water, they provide electricity in a, or help on all projects on all those fronts in a place where if they didn't, things would be so much worse and Israel would be stuck with that and the US would be stuck with that and Egypt, like others would be stuck with that. So like, it's just the right thing to do, both from a humanitarian perspective and from a practical policy perspective. Um, it's not just UNRWA, like the Qataris provide a fair dose of money. The United Nations does a lot of work in there. The UN Special Representative, who used to be Nikolai Mladenov, is now Tor Wendelstadt. Um, you know, the Norwegians, like there's a whole bunch of parties that work inside Gaza. A lot of, you know, foreign, you know, like, uh, or a lot of like sort of international NGOs um, who also do work in there. And so you have to use those mechanisms to coordinate the assistance. And sometimes that means 
dealing directly with Hamas for these organizations. A lot of times it means kind of not dealing directly with Hamas, but Hamas kind of being okay with the whole thing. Because like at the end of the day, Hamas runs the Gaza Strip, so they got to be okay with it. The report you co-authored concludes the U.S. government should take tangible steps on the ground to better the situation as opposed to like this immediate permanent status agreement uh, initiative. So where has the U.S. diverged from that approach and and where have they aligned with that approach? And, and if they have really diverged from it, is there a way for them to course correct going forward? So I don't think they've diverted from it, but I don't think that I think, you know, we actually make the case in the report that the U.S., is going to be inevitably like reducing its investment in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and focusing on other issues. Like we got a global pandemic, we got this competition with China, we got a global climate crisis. Like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not going to be where it was, you know, 20 years ago. Even now in the middle of this conflict where it's taking up a lot of people's time, it's not like where it was. Um, and it shouldn't be, right? So, but so the argument we make are here are like good things you can do anyway. I do think that the administration came in um, and frankly, they, 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 they took the advice too much to heart, right? Like, and they're still getting their feet under them and they were kind of overwhelmed um, with other issues. But I think they are learning from this experience, like and it's a really hard thing to do, like for governing for officials, right? And and we've had problems with this in the Middle East. Sometimes it feels like we're either all in or all out, right? We're either leaving the Middle East or we're like totally stuck in the Middle East, where what you really need to do is figure out like what's that smart, long-term, sustainable approach, which is what we try to recommend in the report. So, you know, they've started doing stuff. They've restarted assistance, which was a big recommendation of ours. Um, but they've been slow on reopening the consulate because it's just bureaucratically challenging but now I think that's much more of a sense of urgency because if the consulate had already been open, we would have much better reporting on the ground. It might have sort of nipped this issue in the bud before it became a full out explosion when things started moving in Jerusalem. Um, you know, we um, we recommend like working on the Palestinian prisoner payment issue. It's going to take a long time. They're, they're thinking about it, but it's like way early. Um, and. I do think we also, the other recommendations we make is putting a lot more energy into the assistance and humanitarian situation in Gaza. Sadly, I think they're going to do that now, but, you know, unfortunately, hopefully not just to have it all like blow up again in a few years. You, you mentioned this um, in the report about sort of the erosion with the relationship with the Palestinians and how Biden might rebuild it. So there's a little bit of a, of a pause in terms of rebuilding it, the consulate. So can you speak a little bit more about that and... Why has there been some stalling of the progress in terms of the relation, rebuilding the relationship with the Palestinians and how that may have impacted what we're looking at today? Sure. No, look, I mean, reopening a diplomatic building is like hard. Um, there are most importantly, because you have security concerns, you want to make sure that your people are safe if you're the State Department. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into that, um, you know, um, there's the political challenge of like for the Israelis, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think they're going to stand in the way of reopening a consulate like to the Palestinians, but they're not super thrilled about it. And they're like, wait, the U.S. has recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So like, is it are you really reopening this consulate? And how do we like square that with, you know, the American position? And so all these things add layers of bureaucracy and administrivia and like challenge. Right. And so 
the secretary of the state and the president say, like, this is a major priority for me, and everybody knows that, then all this bureaucracy can, like, be, you know, the red tape can be cut very quickly and things can move quickly. If if it's more like, yeah, let's let's do this eventually, like, it becomes a lot more challenging and it just takes more time. And so I think before, like, this complicated process was moving slowly, I think, um in the aftermath of this conflict, you should expect it to be hypercharged and move very quickly. Um, and so some of these things that were happening on a very different timeline will still happen on a much shorter timeline now. And I wanna turn this podcast into a tabloid, but mm-hmm. Biden and Netanyahu have both been in government for a very long time. Some would say too long for one of them. Uh, what's their personal relationship like? Because sometimes the relationship that leaders have has a has an impact on what we see in the ground in terms of their policies. So do you think there's any impact of their relationship? I mean, I don't know exactly what their relationship is like, because I've never been in the room with both of those guys at the same time. Um, you know, I do think that part of the rationale and calculation for the approach the U.S. has taken, um, at least thus far in this conflict, has to do with like Biden's knows BB. Biden knows world leaders. Biden's been on the stage for such a long time. And he does have to a certain extent the belief that like those relationships matter and we can use those to convince leaders and move them in the right direction. Um, and I think that's true in most cases. Um, I don't and, and I think it's true of like the BB Netanyahu of 10 years ago. I just don't think it's true of the BB Netanyahu of today. The BB Netanyahu of today, who is so focused on his own political survival so focused on staying out of jail um, that he'll pretty much do anything. And like that is his first, second and third priority. And I think anybody who's engaged with him in recent years has learned you can't trust him. Right. I mean, just ask Benny Gantz and now Naftali Bennett. Right. Like, yeah, we'll go into a deal with you. So, you know, so do I really believe that Biden can get anything out of Bibi Netanyahu? Like, no. I think at the end of the day, BB does BB, and the only way to, you know, if he was gone tomorrow, um, it's not like we would have major progress on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and everything would be great. Uh, but as long as he's around, like, nothing serious can happen. Something that the report you co-authored warned against was expelling Palestinian communities from parts of the West Bank and also changes to the status quo of Jerusalem, which are two things that are obviously known to lead to a cycle of violence. So... Was Sheikh Sharach on your radar beforehand as a potential scenario that could immediately lead to violence? And did you anticipate how prescient your report was going to be in identifying the cycle that could ensue? Um, so Sheikh Sharach wasn't particularly on our on our you know on our radar, but I mean it could be anything, you know. Like the like the 2014 Gaza War started, if you remember, because of kidnapping in the West Bank of Pal- of the. Uh, um, Israeli teenagers and then, you know, and their murder and then the murder of a, a you know, Palestinian teenager in East Jerusalem. Um, but these, you know, the second intifada started because of stuff on the Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif, right? Like these, they're not the underlying conditions. The underlying problem is more structural in terms of Israeli-Palestinian conflict, lack of progress, um, you know, occupation, things like that. In Gaza, the blockade and sort of Hamas control of Gaza. Um, But yeah, Jerusalem's almost always the trigger in one form or another because it's like the heart of the conflict. I always say like 
you know, that in many ways Israelis and Palestinians are trying to negotiate a divorce, right? They're trying to live, you know, separate, but live next to each other. And if they're trying to negotiate a divorce, Jerusalem is the child, right? It's the most emotional issue. It's really hard to figure out how to do custody. And any custody arrangement is going to be ultimately uncomfortable to all sides. And, and it, you know, and that's, I think, a lot of what, what, what is just happening here. Like it's the fighting over Jerusalem and then it just spills into everything else. Without blaming the entire conflict on the Trump administration, um, I do think that it's possible that some of what we're seeing is a result of his approach, which included strengthening Israel's ties with the Arab states while sidelining the Palestinian issue and also like shifting away from a traditional two-state solution. And, and of course, all of, his, um, all of his work around Jerusalem and attempting to take it off the table, which we now see did not happen. So what elements of what we're seeing today could you tie back to some of his policies, if any? I think the two biggest ones, so yeah, like the Abraham Accords, I don't think are the reason this is happening, right? The Abraham Accords were a, a positive development that didn't, wouldn't stop this from happening. Some people who are claiming, like Jared Kushner did in the Wall Street Journal a couple months ago, that this is peace in the Middle East, like I think is clearly being proven wrong, but they're still a good thing. Like we shouldn't be criticizing them. Um, just recognize what they are and what they aren't, right? Uh, where I think the biggest problem came from is really all the stuff that David Friedman, the former U.S. ambassador, was doing on the ground. I mean, in Jerusalem, the little stuff, like going to old um, you know, places, holy places that in the past were really delicate and you wouldn't send Americans to because they were contested. Supporting settlements at every step of the way and never getting in the way of settlements as they accelerated. This is the kind of stuff where we are just, I mean, you know, stuff was already kind of on fire and we were just lighting additional, dumping additional kerosene on the ground. And then one other big thing that they did, which was to get rid of the consulate. Um, when, let me explain why this is such a big deal. Um, when I was working in government, like the consulate more than anywhere else was the place where if stuff started simmering with Palestinians and they were unhappy about something in Jerusalem or something in, you know, um, like, they, they had the consulate is the one that had the contacts both in Palestinian and Israeli society that would see this first, right? They're people on the ground. And then they would write long emails back to Washington saying, FYI, like we got a problem here, like Sheikh Jarrah, or like even before Sheikh Jarrah, like the, you know, if you follow the stories of when this conflict started, the, the Israeli police decision to cut the, you know, the muazzin, basically shut off the muazzin, you know, the prayer call in the Temple Mount. Our people in Jerusalem would be the ones tracking all that and sending it back to Washington. And then if things were getting a little ugly, they'd send back, you know, they'd get on the phone or like send back notes saying, uh, hey, things are getting a little bad here. Like we need some American intervention. And, you know, it would start with, you know, maybe assistant secretary, deputy assistant secretary or envoy calling like their counterparts in the Israeli government and be like, hey, guys, there's this in Palestinians, there's this thing going on. Can you tone this down? What can we do to quietly address this? And usually like that worked. And sometimes it was more explosive and it would have to go all the way up to the secretary of state, you know. Um, but you could turn this stuff off before it got out of control. Well, the Trump administration took away our eyes on the ground. And so when this crisis came, uh, when that month of buildup in Jerusalem happened, like we, the U.S., were just not very well armed to see it coming early. And by the time it really like hit our screens and by the time our people were responding, um, it was almost too late. And we did intervene, right? We intervened near the end. 
I mean, near right before rockets took off, if you remember, there's this whole story about how there was going to be the Jerusalem Day Parade and how explosive that was going to be. Um, we call, I mean, our leadership called over to Israel, uh, pretty high levels, um, not the president, but like National Security Advisor, Secretary of State. And basically, we're quite critical in getting the parade route changed and in um, getting sort of the Sheikh Jarrah case like put off for a month. I don't know if we were decisive, but like we weighed in and it made a difference. But it was too late. Like a few hours later, Hamas launches rockets and it all and everything goes, you know, boom, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, if we had called five days earlier, like we might not be in this situation right now. And a lot of that has to do. I mean, some of that you can put on the Biden administration for not being engaged enough early on. But I think a lot of it has to do with what the Trump administration did before them, which was basically blind the United States um, and make it impossible for us to, to see these things coming or harder. I wouldn't say impossible, make it significantly harder for us to see these things coming. Right. They, they just no longer get the information as quickly as they could have or all the information they're getting is from Israel, but none from the Palestinians. So they don't have the insider knowledge to address the core of the issue. I think a lot of it is that it's even worse than that. Um, you know, if you have a is U.S. ambassador who's pro settlements and pro like doing whatever you want in Jerusalem, you're no longer going to have foreign service officers spending their time tracking all the bad things that might happen there. Right. Like so then the ambassador leaves and you have a new administration, the Biden administration. But it's not like everything just switches on a dime. Right. People keep doing what they're used to doing. And so I don't think that that reporting function ever really got back up to where it was before. So it's partially the consulate, but it's also partially just, you know, the Trump administration policy that set us on this course in the first place. Right. Something I thought that was interesting in the report is that you laid out a lot of the opportunities from the Abraham Accords. And you, we spoke about it earlier, like in the past 15 minutes, about how the Abraham Accords theoretically has potential to move the needle on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, but probably will not. Um, and in the report, you were not very optimistic about its ability to do so. But what's what could happen? Like right now, there is this relationship between Israel and some of the Arab states that didn't exist as prominently before. So where's the room for some sort of collaboration that could better the situation right now? Um, and I'm also wondering, not to piggyback on the question, but obviously during the Oslo period, we saw something similar in which there were some relationships built. And then during the second intifada, those relationships deteriorated. So could this escalation be that deterioration? So look, I mean, the Abraham Accords, like I said, there's a certain benefit to just Israeli-Arab cooperation, period. And a lot of, and a lot of that stuff will continue, I think. Um, but where there's potential on the Palestinian issue is, I mean, I think the Abraham Accord countries are quite nervous about what's happening right now, you know, less so about what's happening in Gaza, more so about what's happening in Jerusalem, which for them is politically explosive. And so and they have a fair like the Israelis care about what these countries think now in a way they didn't care before. So ironically, you know, a country like the UAE might have more leverage with Israel now to get it to change its behavior on, on certain things like in Jerusalem just by calling up and saying, guys, this is causing huge problems for us and it's going to make it a lot harder for us to do the types of things we've all talked about doing on the Abraham Accords. And given how much Israel has invested in the Abraham Accords, that is, yeah, that can be like a source of leverage. Um, has it been? Have they picked up the phone to Israel yet? Um, to some extent, but they've stayed pretty quiet. I mean, they've, they've put out statements, but 
I mean, the other thing is none of these countries ever really had like a deep understanding of the details of this conflict. They all like because none of them ever like go to Israel. They didn't have normalized relations, right? Like so now they're learning all this stuff that they like Sheikh Jarrah, like yeah, no, like you and I have been to Jerusalem, right? Like most Emiratis, like even Emirati leadership, never been to Jerusalem. Don't know what Jerusalem looks like. Don't know what any of this stuff like really like you know. They have like a sort of theoretical, like sort of emotional affinity to it, symbolism, but like they haven't visited Israel, right? Like, so like, and this conflict is so much about what is happening like on the ground and the minutia, right? So now, because they have a deal with the Israelis and because we have these crises, like they're learning it, but that's going to take time. They have to take our virtual tour, I think. Mm-hmm. That's oh, a game totally. changer for them. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on it. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how this current conflict played out in Congress, because I I would argue that Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict right now is getting a little bit too much attention, um, perhaps more than it should, but that's kind of the norm with this issue. So how is that playing out in like domestic politics? Are we seeing conversations around that? Are we seeing legislation around it? What does that look like? So look, I mean, I think it's interesting in Congress... Well, the Republican Party has just gotten, I think, more hardcore pro-Israel than it's ever been. I think, like, Bibi's strategy of just basically engaging Republicans and alienating Democrats has, you know, pretty much done a good job on on, on doing precisely that. Um, You know, inside the Democratic Party, it's quite complicated, right? I mean, you have sort of the the fringe of, like, you know, progressives like uh, AOC and Rashida Tlaib or Bernie, like, but they're not really the majority of the party. Um, then you have some of the more traditional, like, you know, sort of traditional position, just pro-Israel, support of Israel no matter what, without really questioning or like ha- asking the hard questions, just sort of being like, we're, we're there no matter what. Um, but most of the party is moving to this really complicated space. Um, frankly, a space where like Israel policy forum sits, like, right, which is like, support Israel. We love Israel. You know, we believe in the future of a Jewish state. We believe in the two state solution, but we also have these, you know, American values involving, you know, freedom and justice, equality, treatment of others. Um, And some of the things we see about Israel are just so wonderfully remarkable and great. And some of them, especially what's happening with the Palestinians is deeply problematic. And how do we reconcile that? Right. Like like and that's kind of the struggle you see members of Congress going through and then like and how they express that, you know, in the public positions they take. So what you've seen is, you know, most members on the Democratic Party, both strongly supporting Israel's right to defend itself, but also very much calling for a ceasefire and expressing concern about civilian casualties. Um and that's not where we were the last time this conflict happened. Like last time this conflict happened, there were some Democrats doing that, but most Democrats were very much in the, you know, um, you know, just Israel has the right to defend itself world and not not saying that second half. And that's changing. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, that's a good change. You know, that's a that's an important change in terms of how we, we deal with this issue. I don't want to put you in, in the spot to have to backtrack later, but are you interested in putting in any predictions for uh, for going forward with a ceasefire or not? So I would just say that the next couple of days are likely to be pretty decisive one way or the other. We're either going to get to a ceasefire, which I hope we do, 
or I think that the tension between the U.S. and Israel is going to increase pretty significantly. I don't think President Biden can continue to sustain this position given where domestic politics and international politics are for much longer. So we're either going to see more of a split and a break or we're going to see a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. And if there isn't a ceasefire while Biden continues to call for one, is that going to have a serious impact on the Biden-Netanyahu relationship or the country's Uh, relationships? I think it might. I mean, I think it might just demonstrate to Biden what some of us already know, which is like, and which I think he knows too, which is ultimately you can't trust Bibi Netanyahu, right? I mean, like, I think, but I do think that Biden has thought it very important to try to not have a big break with Israel early, both to allow him to do things with Israel later and also just because of other priorities. And also because he believes that this is the best way to influence the Israelis. Um, but at some point, like, it's our domestic politics and it's also our international credibility and what we, America, stand for if this continues and the pictures that are coming out of Gaza continue, and, you know, and, and the, the numbers, you know, of civilians being killed keep going up. When thinking about a long-term strategy, are there actions that the U.S. and or Israel can take to weaken Hamas and Islamic Jihad in the long term, not necessarily immediately? And well, perhaps I mean, and perhaps strengthen moderates in the area. Yeah, I mean, actually, like, well, look, I mean, at the end of the day, Hamas represents 40 percent of the Palestinian public. Like they're going to need to be integrated into the Palestinian polity in some form or another. You know, um, I, we've recommended I mean, I think there's a couple different things in a report we put out on Gaza a couple of years ago. We recommended kind of a three way deal between Israel, Hamas and Fatah that involved the long-term ceasefire between Israel and Hamas and um, a relaxation of the blockade of Gaza and reintegration of sort of Hamas and Fatah into one unified, you know, or into the P- Hamas into the PLO and the Hamas disarming and Fatah starting to retake parts of Gaza. Like, that's one way to do it, right? The other is elections, which we were almost at, you know, about a month ago um, as a as a pathway to try to you know, now there's risks with elections, but I think after 16 years without elections, um, I think elections are desperately needed inside the Palestinian territories. It might be a way to crack some of this. And you're going to have to just figure out how to deal with a government that includes Hamas. You don't have to engage with Hamas directly. And Hamas is not going to be running the government. We have to figure out a way to have a government that has them as part of the political system because they are an important part of the political system. Does that include legislation changes? Or just changes in actions? Because you mentioned earlier that there, there are legal restrictions on engaging with Hamas. So does, well, do there need to be changes made? No. I mean, we, we can engage a government that includes Hamas, right? We just can't engage Hamas, right? So like, just like we can engage the Lebanese government, but Hezbollah is part of the Lebanese government. Just like we engage the Israeli government, but we don't engage with like the Kahanists who are now sitting in the Israeli government, Right. Like, we choose who we deal with, right? So what we really need is for Fatah and Hamas to be communicating better. If they yeah. can communicate, then we can just coordinate with Fatah without an issue, essentially. Bingo, yes. And finding ways for them to actually, like, get over their feud. Right. That's the and key, isn't it? Like, we integrate into, like, one... Pal- like, Hamas needs a voice in Palestinian politics, and Fatah needs a voice in Palestinian politics. And ideally, those need to be integrated as opposed to one controlling half of the Palestinian territory and the other one controlling the other half of the Palestinian territory. Mm -hmm. 
Have you seen any steps from the U.S. and or Israel in the past that have, have resulted in this division within within Palestine, between Fatah and Hamas, but also within those groups themselves? Oh, yeah. I think at this point, like, Israel's policy, at least opponents of the two-state solution, many Israelis view, if we can sustain the division, then we can make the case that there's nobody to negotiate with on the Palestinian side because their leadership is divided. So we want to keep things the way they are in Gaza. We want to oppose, I mean, Israel opposed this latest round of elections for fear of you know, Hamas winning. So we want to absolutely maintain the status quo. And they interfered to the point of like making it almost impossible. To, no, they didn't make it impossible to hold the elections. I think the elections were canceled because Abu Mazen decided to cancel the elections, right? But like Israel did, you know, did not play a helpful role in that and put a lot of pressure on the Palestinians to cancel the elections. Um, and then turn around the next day and say, we can't possibly negotiate with the Palestinians because like they're, they're divided. Well, like it's one of the other guys. And like we, you know, I think early in when the division first happened, we like, you know, isolated Hamas and sanctioned them and tried to just, you know, see if we could just get rid of them, like by squeezing them. And I think at least I've realized like we've been at that for 15 years and it's never going to work. So I think the American position has kind of shifted to not actively supporting, but also not getting in the way of um, like efforts at unity. If the Biden administration were to read your report, which let's be honest, they probably have, um, and take into account all of the steps that you, Tamara and Michael have advocated for, what would that look like now going forward? Um, I think... Well, let's just say here, these are my biggest pieces of recommendation for the Biden administration for the moment, and all of them come out of, in one form or another, report. Like, one, um, get going on the consulate immediately for all the reasons we've already discussed. Like, that is critical. So we, you know, two, you know, a surge of assistance and economic support into Gaza, which we also recommend in the report, especially around lines of electricity, water, and freedom of movement, which are the three biggest issues. Um, and three, we, we sort of started to get into this, but I think it, even more important now, given the domestic political context, I would like to see Joe Biden out there talking more about um, rights, talking more about the universal challenge with the Palestinian issue and the way it applies to the US. You know, you know, we have these broad, you know, the conflict. You know, it's the West Bank, it's Jerusalem, it's evictions in Jerusalem, it's Palestinians who are stuck in Gaza with nowhere to go um, and being bombed. It's it's um, it's in the West Bank. The fact that, like, you know, if you're Palestinian in the West Bank and you get arrested, you go to a military court with a 99 percent conviction rate. And if you're a settler or even if it's you or me and we go into the West Bank and get arrested, we get due process. Like that's how is that equal rights? Right. Like, how is that like, OK, right. Um, and the justification for that is it's military occupation. Well, the occupation has been going on for, you know, so long. I don't think this is what this was meant for. Um, or you look at the fact that like in, you know, so far, at least as of yesterday, an article I was reading in Haaretz, there had been 116 indictments against, you know, um, Arab citizens of Israel who had, you know, been participating in the sort of, uh, violence between Arabs and Jews. Uh, inside, you know, inside Green Line Israel, and zero indictments against Jews. Yeah, right? Like, you, know, you saw my here, face. <laughs> even though we're on a podcast, right? Um, 
Like how, I mean, these types of things resonate in the United States. We as a country, the United States need to be working on making our situation better because like we have these problems too. Like they're not all solved. We all know that, right? Um, but we can also be talking to our friends and encouraging them to do the same thing. And that's what we need to be doing with Israel also. Um, so I would like to see like those three things come to the fore in the near future. Um, and I hope they do. Thank you, Ilan, for joining this week. Sure. And um, yeah, thanks for having me. And hopefully this is all over soon. <laughs>